1: Help, is anyone here? I'm running out of battery and I'm in urgent need of electricity. I will take anything. Coal, gas, solar,
0: wind, nuclear, anything. Please. Hey Siri, sorry, I've been enjoying this hiking trail in the forest a bit too much and forgot to plug you into the portable battery pack. Full of green electricity, of course. Okay, let me quickly put you on power saving mode too. Here you go.
1: Thank you for not starving me out. This was borderline mobile phone abuse. I was about to pass out.
0: I apologize, Siri. It was unintentional.
1: Apology accepted. This is clearly not my natural habitat. No Wi-Fi connection, no running electricity, and no tech diversity. What the hell is this place?
0: Well, Siri, this is a buzzing, living, biodiverse forest. This is what biodiversity looks like, sounds like, and smells like. Now... Let's take a deep breath of fresh air.
1: Ahem. Easy for you to say. I cannot smell. But hold on a second. You are not going to make me sing. I want to be like you, from the Jungle Book, are you? Because I don't want to be human too. Woohoohoo. Shabbatidahum. Ha <laughs>
0: ha. No, I like you the way you are. And besides, strength lies in differences, not in similarities to quote author Stephen Covey. So, we are investigating one important form of diversity, biodiversity, also known as biological diversity. It is defined as the variety of all living things and their interactions. There are three levels of biodiversity, species, genetic, and ecosystem diversity. In this forest, for example, it includes not just trees, but a multitude of plants, fungi, animals living above and below ground. You need to add all the microorganisms and their associated genetic diversity. And more importantly, the critical circular network and interdependence that connect all of them. The biodiversity in these forests and land were deeply disrupted by human activity. This started with carbon intensive agriculture, mining, oil extraction, and the building of large cities over the past 2,000 years. Today, they are very energy-intensive places, crowded, engulfed in constant noise, air, and light pollution. Traffic all around, cars, trains, airplanes, new construction work to accommodate a growing population that needs to be fed with large amounts of imported carbon-intensive food. You then have a huge amount of waste, plastic pollution, and finally, billions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions. We covered a number of these themes in the Carbon-Free Calories and Smart Cities episode.
1: Hum, I feel you are being overly critical about my natural habitat and digital ecosystems, which is, may I remind you, yours too.
0: Sorry, I don't mean to be harsh, but I have good reasons. Have you not read the latest IPCC report? The sixth assessment report on climate change says that unless we take more drastic actions in decarbonizing the global economy, we are heading towards not 2.3 degree, but 3.2 degree global warming by the end of the century.
1: Very alarming indeed, especially for the proverbial and dare I say, masochist frog in boiling water.
0: Yes, our time is running out. I have also been receiving several emails, research articles on biodiversity from colleagues, friends and clients who are passionate about this topic. It is worth investigating. So, let's ask some key questions. Why is preserving biodiversity so crucial and probably as important as reducing carbon emissions? If not done correctly? Could the urgent need to transition from burning fossil fuels to the use of renewable energy potentially threaten biodiversity? Later on, our guest Mathieu Morin, co-founder and CEO of Iceberg Data Lab, explains how we can measure, track and monitor biodiversity footprint across supply chains and corporate business activities. He also shares with us the innovative solutions not only protecting but also restoring biodiversity. Let's start our investigation. First, trivia time. Earth was formed over 4.5 billion years ago, with life starting about 3.8 billion years ago. According to nationalgeographic.org, there have been five mass extinction events. Already? Yes, the world's leading conservation organization, WWF, describes an extinction as a short period of geological time in which a high percentage of biodiversity or distinct species dies out. It's important to note that in geological time, a short period can span thousands or even millions of years. The first extinction occurred about 440 million years ago and killed 71% of all living life. It ended the Ordovician period known for a dramatic increase in marine life and the appearance of early terrestrial plants. The leading theory points to silicate weathering. Silicate is any of the many materials consisting of silica combined with metal oxides. They form a major part of the rocks of the Earth's crust. Silicate minerals absorb a certain amount of carbon dioxide. The Earth grew colder and ice sheets spread over the land. The second extinction eliminated 70% of all marine species about 370 million years ago. It was potentially caused by ocean anoxia, insufficient oxygen. The third one, the greatest extinction of all, was called the Great Dying. It occurred 252 million years ago and may have lasted as long as 15 million years. The Great Dying wiped out 80% of marine life and 70% of terrestrial life. The main cause may have been high ocean temperatures and clouds from volcanic eruptions. The fourth extinction was about 200 million years ago, caused by massive greenhouse gas emissions released from large-scale volcanic activity leading to a rise in global temperature. And finally, the fifth extension occurred 66 million years ago, ending 67% of all species including dinosaurs. The cause was the impact of a giant 10-kilometer-wide asteroid. The airborne dust from the impact blocked sunlight and triggered a drop in temperature and a collapse in the ecosystems.
1: Too bad Bruce Willis wasn't around at the time to save the planet from the asteroid impact just like he did in the movie Armageddon.
0: Someone please call Bruce Willis to save the planet. From us, actually. There is a sixth extinction on the way, caused by human activity. Species are going extinct between a hundred to a thousand times faster than they did in the millions of years before humans began to dominate the planet. Scientists at a biological extinction conference held in 2017 at the Vatican suggested that 50% of all living species could go extinct by the end of the century because of global warming. This is happening at a rate faster than species' ability to adapt. This is even more alarming when you consider, according to the National Society.org, that there are around 8.7 million species of plant and animals in existence and only 1.2 million have been identified. It is important to keep in mind that humans are like many animals, highly dependent on their environment. The Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services highlighted in an assessment that about 50,000 wild species are used by billions through different practices, including more than 10,000 wild species harvested directly for human food.
1: But why is biodiversity as important as carbon emissions?
0: Very good question. The biosphere is basically a massive carbon sink. Living organisms are made of essentially four key molecules. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. The carbon trapped in the biosphere is called green carbon. The one in the ocean, blue carbon. And the one in fossil fuels, gray carbon
1: similar to hydrogen as discussed in the Calling Hydrogen to the Stand episode.
0: Yes, indeed. The terrestrial biosphere contains 3,170 billion tons of carbon, a.k.a. gigatons, 2,500 of which, nearly 80%, is found in soil. And the United States Department of Agriculture reveals that forests account for 400 gigatons of carbon. This might sound big, but the ocean contains a whopping 38,000 gigatons, 16 times more carbon than the biosphere.
1: Wow. By the way, energyeducation.ca says that one ton of carbon, if burned, generates 3.6 tons of CO2.
0: Good point. We should adjust this when comparing the 2,500 gigatons of CO2 equivalent in greenhouse gases accumulated in the atmosphere so far since the pre industrial era. Of 1850 to 1900. At 3,000 gigatons of CO2 equivalent, we will bridge the 1.5 degree global warming milestone. At the current rate, it will be in less than a decade. Now, you may be wondering how all this carbon ended up in the biomass. Well, it is simply because all terrestrial biodiversity came to life thanks to a very important chemical reaction, photosynthesis. Via trees and leaves, there are, in a way, biological solar panels.
1: Oh-oh, trivia time again.
0: Well, here's the magic potion. Trees basically take six molecules of CO2 from the air, six molecules of water, H2O, from the soil. With sunlight, they produce glucose, C6H12O6 releasing six molecules of oxygen, O2. And voila, biological carbon capture and storage while producing key nutrients for plants and animals.
1: Biodiversity and the biosphere can solve climate change then.
0: It is clearly part of the solution. Not preserving it, however, could lead to additional billions of tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. And this will be game over. Let's remember that forests, globally, suck up 2.4 gigatons of carbon each year, according to Science.org. That's roughly 16% of annual GHG emissions, which have now reached 54 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. Finally, don't forget to multiply tons of carbon by 3.6 to get tons of CO2.
1: Not enough to get us to net zero alone, but a massive contributor indeed.
0: Last year, at the UN Biodiversity Conference, COP15, governments from around the world decided to adopt the Kanmin-Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. It includes concrete measures to halt and reverse nature loss, including putting 30% of the planet and 30% of degraded ecosystems under protection by 2030. This is a landmark accord and significant step in the right direction.
1: But wait. What about the carbon that is still trapped in fossil fuels, the grey carbon?
0: Excellent question, Siri. The answer, according to uv.org, is around 5000 gigatons of carbon. Now, the better question is, where do fossil fuels come from?
1: Underground, of course.
0: Yes, but do you remember the mass extinction events we discussed earlier? Fossil fuels are formed from the remains of these ancient plants and animals who died long ago. After millions of years under intense heat and immense pressure on the ground, they turn into oil, gas, and coal. They are stocks of ancient, renewable sun energy. Or put differently, they are the remains of ancient biodiversity.
1: This is as shocking as the scene in Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, where Darth Vader says to Luke Skywalker,
0: I am your father. Well, technically speaking, fossil fuels are the remains of the ancestors of today's biodiversity. They are the forefathers. Now, let's look further into the interaction between climate change and energy transition. I've listened to a fascinating TED Talk called the blind spot of the green energy transition. The speaker, environmental expert, Olivia Lazard, states that decarbonizing our economy means decoupling economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions, i.e. green growth. But to get there, we are recoupling economic growth with intensive mineral extractions. And to harness renewable energy via solar panels, wind farm, plus battery storage for EVs, we need to mine huge quantities of non-renewable materials as discussed in our Mobility with Impact episode. However, because of the low density of minerals in rocks, we need to dig and dig and dig even more into large quantities of earth deep into the environment for key minerals such as lithium, copper, cobalt and so on. But where is the supply? Lithium is found in Chile and Australia, cobalt in the Democratic Republic of Congo, nickel in Indonesia and the Philippines. China is dominating all the processing and has abundant reserves of rare earths. But these minerals are also in places with the following characteristics. Countries that rank high on the corruption indices, affected by conflicts, climate vulnerable, and more importantly, with big ecosystems that need to be protected to stabilize the climate and protect Earth's biodiversity. These countries are in Latin America, the Amazon, equatorial Africa, and Southeast Asia. Changing and eliminating this ecosystem through mining-causing deforestation will undermine planetary security, not just international security. It's a perfect storm.
1: Well, this is where we should say, Houston, we have a problem?
0: Well, according to Olivia Lazard, we need to use science to determine mining licenses. We also need to integrate socio-economic and ecological regeneration within our business models. There needs to be a global public good regime and resources should be managed globally. Otherwise, we risk conflict and global competition and scramble for minerals. We should also invest in conflict resolution and fight against corruption. Finally, we need to reduce our need for energy and invest in the circular economy. Invest in the ecological assessment of global supply chains with data on carbon and biodiversity. In a nutshell, Olivia defines this as ecological diplomacy.
2: We need to tackle
1: fundamental issues around economic redistribution on a global scale. We need a geopolitical de-escalation around decarbonization and regeneration. We've translated that into a concept we've called ecological diplomacy. And we're pushing really hard for the European Union to adopt this framework within their foreign policy.
0: Okay, this makes me want to find more innovative solutions and see how one can not only protect biodiversity, but also restore it. Another TED Talk called Global Movement to Restore Nature's Biodiversity, by Thomas Crowder, brings some great insights on how to repair biodiversity. Thomas's company, Crowder Lab, collected data from 1.2 million forests to build new machine learning models to predict forest structures. There are 3 trillion trees on Earth, half the amount a few thousand years ago. Based on their modelling, there is room for 1 trillion additional trees. If we can protect these areas, the soil and vegetation, one could capture 30% of excess carbon in the atmosphere. To advance this initiative, organisations like the World Economic Forum launched a one-trillion-tree campaign with governments around the world pledging commitments to restorations of forests. However, to quote American actor Gary Bussey, If you take shortcuts, you get cut short. There was a big mistake in the communication and execution of these projects. Restoration is not enough. It is only one of a portfolio of many solutions needed. This is the sound of an eucalyptus plantation. There are no sounds of birds or insects. It's not an ecosystem. There is no biodiversity.
1: You are right.
0: It's a monoculture of one single tree species planted for rapid tree growth. The local community has lost its biodiversity and the benefits of what these ecosystems provided. Clean water, soil fertility, and more urgently, protection from intense fires that threaten every summer. Let's listen again, but this time, a no audio recording from the Blue Forest in Hale, Belgium. Here you can hear the beautiful sound of birds chirping. And if you listen more closely, the leaves dancing in the wind. I could get used to this. According to a UN report, Fifty percent of reforested areas around the world are monocultures, planted for rapid carbon capture or timber production. They offset emissions without considering the local ecology, which is not sustainable longer term. There is a big risk of reforestation done wrong. Every good idea only works if done right. In response, Thomas created the Restore, R E S T O R an open data platform for through a collaboration with Google and the scientific community. RESTORE provides the restoration movement with free ecological insights and lessons learned from trial and error, and information on biodiverse project financing. RESTORE not only provides information about trees, but also land and soil protection, while protecting the interdependence networks of species. So, we explore the development of biodiversity, the interaction between climate change and energy transition, and finally, how to repair biodiversity. Let's now discuss how we can track and measure biodiversity to preserve the environment and fight climate change with Mathieu Morin, co-founder and CEO of Iceberg Data Lab, a database focused on assessing the biodiversity footprint of businesses Hello, Mathieu. Hi, Coucou. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for your invitation. So let's uh, kick off then. First question, can you tell us about your company's mission statement and also how you came up with the name? Aren't icebergs going extinct with global warming?
2: Iceberg Data Lab, actually, well, we found the name uh, first to put an emphasis on what our focus are, which is environmental impacts. So hence the iceberg, which is a symbol, both on the climate impact, obviously, as you mentioned, and of a preserved landscape and nature to be preserved. Data, that's to stress the fact that we are a data provider and and we are not involved in, in advisory or that kind of business. And labs, that's well, because we are innovative. At the end of the day, it stands also for ideal, which was nice in terms of
0: acronym. Doing some investigation on biodiversity is quite shocking to see almost the species genocide that has occurred over the past centuries on wildlife and marine biodiversity. And therefore, what is your approach to measuring biodiversity footprint? And clearly, uh, with every measurement, there are benefits and also drawbacks.
2: Yes, thank you for that question. It it is a, a footprint which is to biodiversity what carbon footprint is to climate meaning we translate what the company which are the constituents of financial portfolios do in terms of consumption of resources uh, the first impact on biodiversity are the change of land use and so the habitat loss of species and the emission of pollution in the atmosphere in the water in the soil which also altogether represent what we name pressures, which translate into impact on the living species and therefore on biodiversity loss. So we do have quantitative solutions. The name is damage function, which are scientific correlation based on, on academic studies, which allow us to go from one pressures level of pollution and company and so on, then pressures, to the other, which is a quantitative impact on the living, which allows us at the end of the day to compare companies across sectors, companies from different sizes, and so on. And and like all quantitative models, to come back to your question about uh, the benefits and drawbacks, well, it is a necessity and to integrate Environmental constraint and biodiversity into decision-making process, you should have that kind of compass, showing you where the materiality, where the key opportunity and risk related to biodiversity loss stand, and allowing, therefore, to make decisions, to engage with companies and so on. But like all quantitative models, it has its limits. And so we should still be in a comparative uh, mood with academics, with corporates, and so on, to continue to improve the input of the models, the uh, information available, and therefore improve afterwards models, and, and to push them where, as of today, we don't have quantitative solutions available, for instance, to appraise uh, the impact of invasive species, and therefore the potential impact of ports or airports, uh, and their surrounding, where uh, we still uh, need to encourage
0: and finance research. Which leads me to the next question, how can the world of finance contribute positively to biodiversity? Because there's a similarity to the greenhouse gas emissions and net zero by 2050, but in the case of biodiversity, we can also have a net positive impact where we can increase uh, the, the biodiversity footprint of different ecosystems. Have you seen interesting ways of the world of finance using your data sets or using better metrics to, to have a, a positive impact on, on biodiversity?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and we went through several examples which are uh, illustration of that when we discussed about mining you 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 rightly mentioned the the fact that uh, many investors are are closely looking at at that kind of fund uh, land rehabilitation fund uh, and so on which is a capital intensive uh, business requiring a long-term view on return and risk appetite for instance so that's one New asset class in itself, basically, so invest into, uh, into what is named natural investment into what is named natural capital and debt uh, financing uh, as well. And we, we, we are providing our data set uh, for uh, index for instance, indexed, uh, manufactured by uh, by Euronext or or Selective, which are used in in very different strategies, uh, which replicate what we have seen in the past. Uh, Some of them as negative screening to filter uh, in an investment universe, for instance, producer of of non-selective pesticides, pesticides which have the strongest undifferentiated impact on uh, species, which will progressively Eliminated uh, by regulation, that will be the, the, the call of, of biodiversity, basically, and, and selective uh, pesticides. And the other, the other way around to identify a positive screening and a positive best-in-class selection, basically, to identify the new business models, such as uh, the few that uh, we, we listed uh, earlier which will continue to provide a service which is essential to humanity, feeding, transportation services, energy, and so on and so on, but by reducing the level of pressure entailed, so reducing the consumption of resources, or reducing, uh, reducing the level of, uh, of pollution. All that will feed decision-making process. On the financing side or on the investment side, to select, or to exclude, and more broadly, to engage and identify positive action, which will need capital.
0: Brilliant. Definitely do agree. When there's will, there is a way. So um, we'll have to uh, act more uh, strongly, with more conviction, and hopefully we'll get there. So this has been uh, fascinating. Thanks so much for your insights, and looking forward to discuss and share views on on biodiversity at a later stage. Thank you, Koko. I will conclude this episode, not with a quote this time, but with the lyrics of one of my favourite songs, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. It is, in my opinion, a touching and powerful tribute to our planet, its biodiversity and our duty to protect it. I see trees of green, Red roses too, I see them bloom For me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world! Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors, and thanks to Mathieu Morin for his valuable insights. I hope this episode has helped you get a better sense of the future of biodiversity. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave comments and stars anywhere you like and spread the word. See you at the next episode. While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional
1: advice.